So tonight uh, we're going to uh, start to wind this study down and I'd like to do that next Wednesday night and then we'll get into some new material. And tonight we're going to talk about when in doubt seek love. And uh, hopefully you have your handout in front of you. And uh, I have no uh, I have no slides here at the social hall tonight because I didn't really see the need to do it. So if you have the handout, uh, just stay close to that. I'll have some additional comments here or there. But uh, for the most part, I think this covers what we want to talk about tonight. So uh, as we begin tonight, I, I want us to just think about the frustration for a moment of reading the Bible and how to come away with um, a sense of clarity. And I don't know if you've ever undertaken that um, big, big goal of wanting to read through the Bible in a year. Uh, have any of you ever done that, uh, tried to do that? Yeah. It's quite, a, it's quite an undertaking because of the amount of material that you're trying to cover. But I think more than that, the diversity of the material that is in the Bible will often cause us to get confused along the way. And uh, part of that, I think, has to do with uh, several things that are there on your handout. Um, if you are brave enough to venture into parts of the Bible, and a lot of people stay in the safe parts. And what I mean by that is usually the New Testament, they might venture into the Psalms or maybe even to the, into the Proverbs occasionally. Uh, they might know the stories of the Bible, um, like Abraham and uh, Jacob and, you know, Joseph and all that type of thing. But uh, very rarely, very rarely do we find that people kind of sit and read through the scriptures because there's places in it that you'll get bogged down. And uh, part of it might be genealogies. Part of it might be the uh, inability to pronounce the names that we come across or even to kind of understand some of the customs that are there. And uh, so in your notes there, I, I put that uh, all of us, I think, at times can be very confused as we open the scripture. And there's three things that I mentioned there that we really do struggle with. Uh, we might not understand some of the terms that are being used. We might not understand some of the figures of speech that are being used. A few weeks back, um, uh, we were talking about some of the different idioms that uh, have no comparison to our language at all. Um, we don't understand the context a lot of times. We might not understand the ancient Near East. We might not understand the era of the Roman Empire. Uh, those are the two major contexts of the Old and New Testament. And certainly we might not understand elements of culture. What is this thing? What's with circumcision anyways? Or, you know, different things like that that seem to be made a big deal about but to us, we kind of go, boy, it's kind of a strange practice. Uh, there's some strange laws. I'm not allowed to wear mixed materials uh, between, you know, uh, different fibers uh, are forbidden. And what's the big deal with um, not doing certain things on the Sabbath day? Uh, all this kind of thing, I think, uh, gets us a little bit confused. Well, if we think, though, that our um, understanding of the Bible 
um, is what is absolutely necessary for us to be uh, in a right relationship with God, then it can cause us some anxiety. And I know a lot of times people put a pretty a big uh, emphasis on getting the Bible right or over overstressing doctrine and different things like that because uh, for whatever reason they've been taught through fear and intimidation or other things like that. And um, since most of the Bible is not black and white um, and there's a lot of gray that we need to wade through, it might cause us a little bit of anxiety. Uh, and I think one of the things that what we're talking about right now, when we talk about what matters most um, is understanding that hey, we do our best to try to understand the scriptures. There will be elements of it that we will never understand. I mentioned that a few weeks ago when we uh, looked at uh, Ezekiel chapter one. Nobody knows what that's about in, mm -hmm. uh, in all honesty. And there's different uh, parts of the Bible like that. Um, there's also the real conundrum, I think, where rules um, that are given or commands that are given in scripture, which seem to be of great importance, such as the food laws and that type of thing. Um, at one time, it was very important and it was put into uh, the constitution of the nation of Israel, uh, not to eat certain types of animals and that type of thing. And uh, and then we look back on it and we go, why? I mean, what's the big deal about this unclean and clean animals and so on and so forth? And um, if you kind of try to follow those things kind of in, in a wooden way, just kind of obeying it um, without trying to think through what is applicable and what is no longer applicable in the scripture, it might even uh, cause harm. And I, I'm thinking a little bit um, about individuals that uh, are part of the Jehovah's Witness uh, movement, how they won't take blood transfusions and this and that because life is in the blood. How dare I take life out of my body or receive a blood transfusion? So there's all these things, I think, that can cause us um, to get a little bit confused at times and as well, may, it might cause us a little bit of anxiety. You'll note in the uh, notes there that learning when to follow the letter of the law and learning when to break the letter of the law to follow the spirit that is prompting us is uh, what I, I call wisdom. And uh, when you have that discernment and you use wisdom rather than blindly following something, I think we get more to the heart of what Jesus is doing when he comes along and he's telling us to seek the greater good. And uh, that's why he stresses that loving God, loving neighbor fulfills all the law and the prophets. So uh, what we find is that the disciples somehow needed to figure out how do you gain new meaning from old text? And um, they, in many ways, and if you do a close study of how even the New Testament writers um, pull out an application from an Old Testament reference, and they, quite frankly, in some occasions, ignore the context. They absolutely ignore it and pull out individual verses for their particular means. Um, we'll find that those type of things 
um, are often red flags to us. Why, if anybody can pull things out uh, of context, well, you can use the Bible to do anything. So um, I think we see all kinds of red lights flashing when we see that being done. But at the same time, the ones that do it the most are some of the biblical writers in the New Testament that change the meaning of some of the Old Testament texts from what it was originally uh, meant. And so um, you'll notice in your notes there that as they face new situations and new circumstances, um, these old institutions that were an important part of their upbringing and learning um, was something that they had to grapple with how do I reconcile the world back then with the world right now? And uh, they're not, they're not, we're not the first ones that are doing that. Uh, they even had to do that in the New Testament. So um, here's a key point. The old instructions were the start of the conversation, not the end. And uh, what I mean by that is maybe in some of the things that God gave, it wasn't like an end in and of itself, but it was to bring about a, a greater conversation. And I think Jesus does that uh, a variety of times when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, there's something more to be applied than the letter of the law, whether it pertains to murder or covetousness or envy or adultery or whatever it may be. Uh, he says there's something deeper that we need to look at. So with that in mind, I, I want us to come to John. Uh, in John chapter 13 through 17, there is this last bit of instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples. And uh, it's kind of like a bookend, if you will. Beginning in chapter 13, he's in the upper room. He washes the disciples' feet. And then he gives kind of this closing uh, set of instructions to the disciples. And if you come to chapter 14, I want to begin in verse 9 and then kind of follow down to verses 11 and 12. So um, Philip, one of the disciples in verse 8 says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And um Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father's in me? So when we look at Jesus, we see the true intent of what God is like. And I think that's why the deity of Christ is so important. We have an accurate portrait of what God is like. So then he goes on and he says this, the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, these are the words of the father. It is the father living in me who is doing his work. In other words, Jesus sees himself as a vessel carrying on the continued work of God. And then verse 11, he says, believe me when I say this, that I am in the father and the father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Okay, so we mimic Jesus. We try to live the kind of life that he lived. But then he says this, this is fascinating. He will do even greater things than these 
because I am going to the Father. Doesn't that seem kind of counterintuitive? That is, you're going to do, do greater things. And the reason you're going to do greater things is I'm leaving. And you go, well, I thought, you know, our best life uh, is imitating you. And I thought our best work is by you having been by our side. And Jesus says, no. He says, verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father and you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. And here he begins to introduce the concept of the Holy Spirit that you're carrying on my work, but you're going to advance my work even farther than why, what I took it while I was here on earth. And so there's this work that is yet to be done. And this work is such that the Holy Spirit has a vital role in allowing you to carry on what I want you to do. And then it says in verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the father, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And now Jesus names what the advantage is going to be. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you, you're going to obey what I commanded you. Uh, what is it that uh, I am commanding you? I'm commanding you to love. He's already said, love God, love your neighbor. So that begins this bookend of teaching. Now go over to chapter 16, which is the other bookend of this section of his teaching before uh, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. In uh, chapter 16, verse 7, I'll begin in verse 5. That, that's where the paragraph begins. Now, I am going to him who sent me. In other words, he's going to leave this earthly ministry. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. So he says, I know you're going to miss me. I know that you're going to be filled with grief, but trust me, it is for the better because of what I'm going to be able to do. Now jump over to verse 12. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only on what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. In other words, even though the Bible will be complete, at least the books that we have considered canonical are complete by the end of the first century, there's an ongoing work even beyond the text. And he says the Holy Spirit is going to lead you further into the future, and um and you're going to be able to do even greater things than I did in the short time frame that I was here. So Jesus is saying, hey, seek the greater good by following the, the leading of the spirit. And the way I put it in your notes here is the spirit will guide you into tomorrow's truth. In other words, there's much more I have to tell you, but I don't have time to tell you. My life is coming to an end. And the Holy Spirit is going to enable you to continue on and learn more about the type of life that I have given to you as an example. 
So the Holy Spirit will guide you into tomorrow's truth. And the Holy Spirit has the power to teach us new things that aren't even on the horizon yet. And so that's how we understand why, even though Old Testament and New Testament not only justify slavery, but also commands that slave obey their masters, why you move beyond that, because it's the Holy Spirit setting the direction. And through the Holy Spirit, you learn new things, follow new things, implement new things, obey new things. So um, in all that, I think what you find is uh, there is this opportunity to keep moving forward. So the key question then becomes, um, where is God leading into new things? Maybe that's beyond the Bible. And I think LGBTQ inclusion is a part of that. I think um, the whole idea of equality, um, the, the whole idea of um, the, uh, the role of women in, in the church as leaders and teachers and preachers, all these type of things are things that come as the spirit continues to move uh, us into tomorrow's truth. Okay, so that was a long-winded thing that I gave. Do you have thoughts or questions or comments that you uh, want to make um, with these first couple of points on your handout? Okay, so moving on then, uh, next point is roots and fruits. <laughs> and um, Jesus does not erase what we have heard before. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, he says on one occasion, do not think that I have come to nullify the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So he is deeply rooted in um, his tradition. He's deeply rooted in his upbringing, um, but uh, being rooted in the tradition still yields a new fruit in each season. And so let's think about agriculture for a moment. Uh, the roots of the tree produce a fruit, and then the next season comes along and it produces new fruit. It's not the same fruit uh, as the year before, although in, in our tree, in the front there, uh, that apple tree that we have, there's still some shriveled up old apples on a couple of the branches that are hanging on over the course of the winter here. And um, yet that is of no value, that is of a, no taste, and that is of no nutrition. You wait for the new fruit that's going, it is going to bear uh, this coming spring, summer, and fall. And so, um, what you have is roots, it's vitally important. You can't produce fruit without root, but at the same time, the fruit is seasonal. And I think what we find is each generation has this opportunity to learn new things and add to the things that they already know. And so those deep traditions that we find in a lot of the church councils, uh, summarized in the Apostles' Creed, different things like that um, are things that uh, we build upon, but we continue to see how they work itself out in producing new fruit into tomorrow's generation. So you'll see at the bottom of your page there, in each season and in each generation, 
we must add our own, but I tell you, I put that in quotations, you've heard it said, but I tell you, to be a part of the creative work of the Holy Spirit, both in our time and in our day, as well as anticipating tomorrow as well. So some thoughts there? Okay, backside of your handout. The focus should be on the fruit, not proving how much we know about the root. So one of the things that Jesus will tell us um, in Matthew, and you're going to turn to Matthew chapter 7 next, if you have your Bible, um, we might be able to wax eloquent about our knowledge about the root of, of the tree, but what really matters is how do you safeguard uh, the fruit that's supposed to come from that tree? So in Matthew chapter 7, what we find taking place here is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is another teaching block of Jesus that has been uh, probably stitched together. I'm not so sure that Jesus gave all this teaching at one time. It might be that Matthew takes the teachings and, and puts uh, different blocks of that together. Um, look at verse 15, chapter 7, verse 15. So here is the metaphor, the tree and the fruit. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy uh, in your name? Or you might put the word teach there. We, did we not teach in your name? and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. There is something more important than the miracles and even the teaching. And so what is the fruit here that uh, Jesus is talking about? Well, it probably is the idea of of love. It's the idea of uh, the type of love toward God and toward other people that he had talked about on a couple of different occasions in the, in the, uh, um, the Gospels. So, um, you know, so you, you find here kind of using this tree and fruit as a teaching tool, uh, Jesus summarizes, hey, if you want to know if it's good, look at the fruit. If there's no fruit, then it is not doing what it's supposed to do. So thoughts there, Any comments? Speaking as a uh, horticulturalist, mm -hmm. um, you have to take care of the roots to have a good crop, a good produce in your tree in the canopy. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that, Shelley? What are some of the things you do? 
Um, you can fertilize, you don't overwater, you make sure when it's planted, it's not still in a little tight ball. You have to stimulate the roots when you put it in the ground. Mm -hmm. um, you know, make sure the soil is proper, mm -hmm. it, that it, there's good drainage um, and not standing water, you know, so, that it's planted in the right spot. If you plant it in shade and it's a sun plant, you're going to be in big trouble. Mm -hmm. And some plants, if you cut the canopy back, the roots will shrink back. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. A tree's so, roots. So like a tree, if you're trying to trim it so that it maintains a certain size, will actually hurt the root? I'm not so sure about a tree because I'm not an arborist. But I know with um, other perennials and things, when you, you trim them, or like grass, when you cut your grass a certain height, the taller the grass, the bigger the roots. Uh -huh. But if you cut it way down, you know, like half uh -huh. an inch, you're gonna destroy it because you're, the roots also die back because they don't get the nutrients. Mm -hmm. What is the number one culprit for a kind of rotting roots? Whether, is it disease? Is standing it root rot. There's a disease called root rot. Okay. It's usually standing water. If oh, it's okay. standing in water. How about insects or anything like that? Does, does that affect the roots? You can have some that will get in there and destroy the roots. But usually it's, um, if you have root rot, it's, it's too much water. Okay. So uh, I usually go in the bark. And okay. get there. So what uh, Shelly was just sharing with us shows us kind of the complexity of all the things you have to keep track of in order to produce good fruit. And I think there is some truth to that using uh, this as a metaphor that there is some complexity that you got to work through to be able to understand um, why certain things can thrive in certain soils why certain uh, things don't, um, knowing what the tendency is of your own particular context or culture, I might even say, because houses different, um, uh, soils are different uh, in different developments and stuff like that. So um, even like you said, uh, full sun, partial sun uh, plays mm -hmm. a big difference in some of these type of things too. The so of your soil too. Uh -huh. So, and I think that's a good point to make is that um, when we think about a lot of the things that we don't understand that is included in the scripture, um, they're living in different soil in many respects than what we are living in. Does that make sense? And mm -hmm. so it, we understand that it might have meant something of great importance at a particular time, but I'm going to tell you most of the things that you read in the book of Leviticus, there are some things there that are applicable to us, but most of the things are in a particular time, place, and culture uh, that, um, in let's say even a more primitive civilization that mimics some of the beliefs or superstitions of the world as it was back then that we have outgrown. And so 
um, Jesus recognizes some of that stuff too, that it's an ongoing process. And um, so that's why he changes some of that stuff too. But the fruit is always the main point. Um, when we look at a situation and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us um, is prompting us saying there's something wrong about this because you're looking at the fruit and it's producing rot or it's producing hate or it's producing abuse or whatever it may be, um, the prompting of the spirit will say, uh, no matter if somebody takes scripture and twists it and uses it, um, then, then you look at the fruit and you determine whether or not it is a, it's true. So uh, as most of us in, in this pandemic, we've been watching probably a lot more television than what we usually have been. And so one of the things that uh, Essie and I have been doing is we have been watching different Netflix series. And it's been interesting because you can kind of watch it from front to back and you don't want wait a week or two each week to stay on top of the storyline. So we're watching one now called The Sinner, um, actors Bill Pullman. And uh, the season that we just completed um, had to do with a, a community outside this little town that was kind of your typical, typical cult type of community that was led by some uh, prismatic leader that uh, elevated this huge rock that was kind of at the center point of this community and stuff. And um, some of the things that they were doing and, and of course, I think you see this in other series as well, things like The Handmaid's Tale and different things like that, where people can twist truth in such a way and convince people actually that it's right, but the end result is um, the fruit is bad. In other words, it doesn't look like love. It doesn't feel like love. And when that's true, then we need to second guess it. And um, maybe the root there is bad. And where there's a bad root, there produces bad fruit as well. So that's the image that Jesus is using. Other thoughts, comments? So is there a safeguard? You know, once you begin to say, well, I have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's mm -hmm. telling me to do this or that, I think all of, all of us have run into individuals that have some, has, has at times had some pretty wacky ideas and they justify, well, God told me this or God told me that. So what is the safeguard? So a couple of points here. Uh, we're all in conversation together and it is true love that guards us from making the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. So whether, whether we realize this or not, uh, this whole issue of white supremacy that has been at the front of the news um, in the last few years, especially, has always been there, but it goes all the way back to uh, even to the Civil War and how uh, both the North and the South both use the Bible to try to justify their position. And um, what we find is that um, words do not stand on their own account. Whether they are spoken or written, their meaning is only full, fully realized within the context of life. In other words, 
we can pull things out of context from the Bible, but that does not give us justification to, um, to use it, abuse it, or control other people by it. And I think what we have found many times over the course of our exposure to Christianity is there are people at times that will um, try to justify certain things using the Bible as their, their ammunition. Um, the Bible will always require a conversation partner to make meaning of it. What I mean by that is um, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we need to converse through to get an understanding of what this particular book might mean in certain situations rather than um, just kind of, you know, um, it's right there in black and white. Well, not really. Uh, it's not there in black and white because what is on the page is found in a particular context. It's found in a particular time and it's stated by, uh, um, uh, by certain people that if we, we're fortunate enough to still have Matthew, that's the book we're in right this second, uh, alive and in this room, we could ask him questions and he could clarify certain things about why he wrote what he wrote. And yet we don't have that advantage, do we? Um, and since Matthew is not here among us, all we can do is converse through it and try to make meaning of it based upon uh, the context and the situation and the culture as we understand it. Um, that does not mean our understanding won't change because as, as further evidence or let's say archeology span or whatever it may be comes to light and as scholars begin to maybe even grapple with language and stuff like that, we might go, oh my gosh, we were misunderstanding this passage uh, and now we know better, that type of thing. So it's an ongoing process. Um, and it takes conversation to work through it. And when we do that, um, what we'll find is that we can come to different conclusions and that's okay because this is not an easy task that we're in here. Um, I, I, I wish, I wish, uh, people would stop saying that it says right there in the Bible. Yeah, it does say in the Bible, but there's a context, there's a situation, there's a set of circumstances that surround that particular uh, verse or passage. So um, to use a different metaphor, uh, next point here is master the music. Um, the Bible's sort of like the notes in a musical scale, we might say. Um, and the way to write new songs is to know the notes. Um, there are certain things that go well together uh, in music, and there are certain things that sound terrible when they're combined, or at least that's what our opinion is because we have been conditioned by a certain sound. So how many of you have ever heard music from the Orient or India, and you go, that doesn't sound like good music to me? You know, have you ever noticed that? They're using all the same notes, um, but they're writing a completely different feel to the songs that are there. And yet at the other, on the other end of the scale, uh, those same notes can produce operas or can produce 
whatever your favorite type of music is. So the notes are critically important, but the way that they are combined uh, does not have one application. So what you can find is in different cultures, what sounds good to a particular ear, um, whether it is uh, the, the twang of a setar uh, type thing or um, you know some of the oriental type music that we're not used to, um, what we'll find is that they're not misusing anything. They know the notes. I mean, they, <laughs> you know, it's the same notes that we use in our musical scale. They're just putting it together differently. Well, if we use the scriptures as the notes, kind of like, um, uh, you know, for our, our particular um, understanding of life as God has given it to us, then, okay, we learn these notes, but what we find is that um, different contexts will often use those notes in different ways. And whether we are appreciative of it as much as uh, other people, so be it. So SD works down at uh, Church of the Covenant, which is uh, very classical music driven type of a church. It's high liturgy type of a church and stuff. And the few services that I've gone to there, I mean, I, they have a master organist knows how to play the notes perfectly, that type of thing. But why don't I appreciate it? I don't, you know, I, I don't get into it. I, 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 yeah, it's good, but you know, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't hit me as it does other people but other people they just live on that they love it that type of thing so same thing can be true with operas um i mean the talent uh Pavarotti and other people in singing operas and stuff like that um they're masters of the notes that they're singing but i don't appreciate it as much as other genres of music does that make sense everybody mm -hmm. so you learn the notes you learn the notes you try to understand the the notes but it will be applied in different ways mm -hmm. um and and that's okay that's okay um so there's not just one way to use those musical notes next point mastering the instrument um different people have different abilities uh, the way I put it here, using the music metaphor, some people can be great pianists, but not great guitarists. Some people can be great uh, using the instrument of their voice, but not a, a physical musical instrument. While none of us can, uh, none of us play and sing a song the same, we do become aware of filters. A piano is not a guitar, a guitar is not a uh, trumpet and so forth. Um, so there's a uniqueness there. And um, let's, let's give an example here. So um, the same notes in a song, the national anthem, okay, sung before every ball game. But different artists will render it in different ways. Have you ever noticed that uh, people take the same exact notes, mm -hmm. but the way they can use those notes it can come out completely different um, at, depending upon who's singing it. And you'll like some of them, 
and you won't like others. Uh, that's just the way it is. But so, they're taking those mm -hmm. notes and they're putting it through the filter of who they are. And so some of it will come out in country style. Some of it will come out in a more formal style. Others will come out in a more pop uh, style, that type of thing. And, um, and I think what we'll find is if we can see that the spirit might take these same notes that we find in the scripture and work through different situations and different cultures and contexts that are much different than ours, uh, we don't need to be afraid of that. It's the same spirit that's at work inside all of us. And you might not like it, um, but it doesn't mean that God cannot use it as long as it's producing the fruit of love. That's what we've been talking about all along over the past uh, few weeks. Some thoughts there? Any thoughts that you have on that? So I have a couple more things before we're done tonight. So you say, but boy, this can be confusing. Well, so here's the deal. And here's the point of the, our lesson tonight. When in doubt, seek love. In other words, the passage uh, from the Bible is ambiguous. The best interpretation is whatever it leads us to uh, love better. Uh, how does this passage, if love is the filter, how does this particular passage help us to love better than we uh, were loving. So the proper goal of reading our Bibles is not necessarily always to get every jot and tittle right. It is to help us to love. So that can be done positively through certain uh, narratives about individuals. It could be done through negative examples. I mean, there are certain people you don't want to be anything like that are recorded in scripture. So we're in the book of Esther on Sunday morning. Haman is not a good guy. He's just not a good guy. You don't want to follow his example, okay? Um, so, so how do I learn to love better in light of the fact that there are narcissistic, arrogant type people in this world that it's all about them and nobody else? Um, how can I learn from that? How can I uh, prevent myself from becoming more like that type of individual? Um, so this last point here is if an interpretation of the Bible does not lead to love, then we need to go back through it again and again until we see how to love better, either from positive or negative portraits of the people participating in the narrative. The majority of the Bible is in story form. So, um, you know, very, very little of it looks like Leviticus, thank God. Oh, yeah. But most of it is couched in narrative and even even things like the ten commandments is couched in the narrative of the exodus of the nation of israel this is how this nation is going to get a good start by laying this down as a foundation for this new society that they are um that they are doing so um thoughts there any comments there so how many of you have ever heard, and I, I bet I have used this on occasion myself in years past, that the Bible's like a cookbook. As, have any of you kind of heard that analogy? It gives, you know, it gives you all these recipes in it. If you will follow it down to um, the letter, then it will produce this 
wonderful uh, pie or dinner or whatever analogy you want to use. I ran across one um, that you might like, you might not like, but um, take it for what it, it's, it's worth. So um, in, uh, I didn't put this in your notes here, but I'm going to read to you a quote from a, a book that's called Text Under Negotiation, The Bible and the Postmodern Imagination. Don't let that intimidate you. But um, it's written by Walter Brueggemann. I've quoted him a few times. And the analogy that he gives is this, that the Bible is a compost pile. Now, before you go, <gasps> okay, <laughs> just listen to what he has to say. Okay, and I quote, the Bible is the compost pile that provides material for new life. I do not use this figure as an irreverent metaphor to suggest that the Bible is garbage. Rather, I use it to suggest that the Bible itself is not the actual place of new growth. Our present life, when we undertake new growth, is often inadequate, arid, or even barren. It needs to be enriched, and for that enrichment, we go back to the deposits of old growth that have been discarded, but that continue to ferment and may contain resources for a way to new life. So I hope you get what he's trying to say, is that what the scripture is actually doing for us is enriching the soil. We've used a number of analogies today, the notes that are there to produce new music. Or in his illustration, the compost pile is such that the nutrients that come from it enable us to live out a new kind of life. So a compost pile is just a pile of garbage unless you plant something, then it becomes the foundation for something new. So um, when we think about the scriptures, what nutrients are here that enable us to live a better life of love? Without the compost, a seed is useless. And without the seed, the compost is useless. Each finds significance and meaning in connection to the other. Every act of creating something new is simply bringing to light in a new way something that, has, that was always there, perhaps implicit or perhaps just unnoticed because without a new context, it couldn't be noticed. Now, that's a fascinating comment. In other words, there's a lot of things in the scriptures that are there, but until you're in a new context or a new generation, we've never noticed it before. And all of a sudden, now it springs out because the need is there to, 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 to engage with it. So maybe this is a paradox. The Bible is not the end, but a means to an end. Yet without the nutrients the Bible contains, the soil remains arid. So um, that I think is, um, I think that it helps. And if you can get the irreverence out of your mind by using the idea of the compost as a way of creating nutrients for new growth and new life, what we're really talking about there is disciple. That's really what it is. It's living a new kind of life. So let's apply this before we close tonight to the book of Esther for a moment. So you can read the same story differently. For example, the book of Esther is read both by Jews and by Christians. 
but we read that book very differently. Um, how each faith community uh, takes the various chapters and sections of the book differs very significantly. For Jews, Esther, and I'm gonna use a different metaphor here. When you type, what size, what point font do you use? Do you use 8.12.14 or 36, okay? Well, for the Jews, the book of Esther is kind of like a 48 point font because it's what helps establish the Feast of Purim. Does that make sense? It's that yearly uh, festival that they, they hold. So the book of Esther is critical to how that is established. For Christians, the book of Esther is more a 12-point font book because we focus on Esther herself. In other words, if I perish, I perish. Or perhaps you have been appointed for such a time as this. That's usually the way Christians use it. We focus just on Esther rather than, oh, this whole book tells the story of how this great tradition of the Feast of Purim uh, came about and was established. Does that help? So two different uh, communities can read the same material and come away with a different emphasis depending on who they are and what their context is. So we are always asking from a scriptural perspective, what does it mean to me today? Or what does it mean to the community I'm involved in, whether it's a church or a synagogue or whatever it may be? Um, if, we own, if, if we think only of the original context, there's only one interpretation. But if we think of its ongoing relevance, there can be multiple interpretations, just like the book of Esther. The interpretation is such that it, it gives uh, a reason for the Feast of Purim, whereas we might look and say, what can a hero do in a particular situation who's willing to be like Esther to put herself on the line and be courageous and that type of thing? Mm -hmm. um, so how we interpret the Bible depends upon who we are and where we are. And um, for the Jews, Esther is interpreted a particular way. For Christians, it's interpreted a different way, but they're both equally valid because it leads to a greater life of, of love among a community of people who use the tradition of Purim and ab among Christians who look to Esther as an example of devotion. So um, when you open the Bible, my last point tonight is this, you are interpreting. The only uninterpreted Bible is the one that is sitting on the coffee table unopened. Once you open the Bible, you engage in interpretation. You cannot fail to do that because there's no, there is no clear one meaning that comes out for everyone that can read the same thing. Have a person read the Psalms, for example. Two people can read, um, and I'm gonna read tomorrow at the graveside, the 23rd Psalm. And you can read it, I can read it, other people can read the 23rd Psalm, and something different will jump out depending upon who that person is. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Um, he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, uh, mm -hmm. He, 
you know, he uh, makes a table in the presence of my enemies or whatever it might be. Um, you engage with it and you interpret it depending upon who you are and where you are in your life. And so the same material is like that compost pile that produces the nutrients that might give you hope. It might give you comfort. It might give to you insight. It might give to you instruction, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So thoughts, comments, uh, that's what I had to share with you tonight, but you have some thoughts that you want to bring up, bring about. But don't people think that the way they've been taught or the way they've heard over the years um, is the, the right interpretation. So, yeah. Now, I've told you about my friend who believes you can lose your salvation. Mm -hmm. He would tell me, he has, he's, he's told me I'm wrong in the way I think about not being able to lose your salvation. And he'll use scriptures and they don't mean the same thing to me that they mean to him. Yeah. He's using them. And I, I can't even tell how he's getting those scriptures to prove his point because they're just not saying that. <laughs> Yeah, but it makes sense to him because he's been conditioned to look through Correct. a certain set of lenses. Yeah. And um, we are all subject to that. We, I, you know, we're all subject to think that the end goal is somehow to um, put together this perfect theological system where every jot and tittle, every piece and part makes sense and it all fits together. And I, I want to tell you that does not exist. The Bible, the Bible is too diverse for that to happen. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so if we think rather than the Bible is somehow material to put together a perfect theological system rather than the nutrients that are needed uh, to live a kind of life that's honoring to God and helpful to other people. So let's take your... Um, your friend is an example. He believes you can lose your salvation. You believe you can't. But can you both live a mutually respectful life of love and service toward each other mm -hmm. and, and to the community? And if you can't, then those nutrients that are there uh, in the scripture, whether he has to serve the Lord because he's fearful that if he doesn't, he might be in jeopardy, or whether you do it because you feel secure and in appreciation to God for what he has given to you, um, that you live a certain kind of life of love towards someone else, then uh, you have both reached the same goal. It's just unfortunate that he carries a heavier burden uh, along the way than you do. And you know, hopefully at some point the spirit prompts him to think differently about it. And I mean, that's true for all of us, but I mean, um, because as I look at that situation, I go, boy, it's a heavy burden to carry to think oh, that, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if I make a mistake, I'm out or whatever. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe there's a misunderstanding of the love of God as seen in Christ. And maybe, there's too much of an emphasis on law and works and 
um, merit and that type of thing that leads to the conclusion that if I don't live up to a certain standard, then God's going to pull the offer of eternal life. Yeah. So, you know, but the end of it is when you're both able to not argue and you are able to mutually love and serve, then you have really hit the the higher law of the scripture. And that's the law of love that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about over the last um, few weeks here. So that's not easy to do because usually when people think that they're right, they have to convince you that they're (laughs) right for whatever reason, whatever motivation that is. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, and we all do it. I mean, but for the most part, maybe we've missed the point a little bit when we put an overemphasis upon thinking that there's somehow this perfect theological system out there. And if I can get all the points right, I can make it fit together like a puzzle. And um, I don't think it's possible. The Bible's far too diverse uh, for that to happen because at some point you're gonna come across some passage of scripture that you're gonna have to twist and turn to make it fit into your system. Um, So, I think the more time we spend in the Gospels and looking at the life of Christ and the type of life that he wants us to lead, the freer we become of of those chapters that don't fit, you know, because they're they're there uh, for sure. Other uh, some other thoughts or comments before we close. Well, I threw a lot of metaphors at you tonight, and I don't know if any of them stuck or not. If they're helpful, great. If not, forget them. But, um, but um, you know, so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of wrap this uh, particular topic up, and um, then we'll move on to some other things. Um, any closing comments before we uh, adjourn? <laughs> Okay. Very good. All right. Thanks for coming Thank out online. Okay. And, uh, Thank you. All right. You're welcome. You have a good rest of the evening. Let's you too. Bye. Thanks. Hi, Esty. Bye.